0: Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. Good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask
1: what you can do for your country.
0: I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox. Uh, BarkBox basically delivers four to six treats uh, for dogs every single month about a, around a surprise theme. So some of the themes I thought were kind of fun were Churassic uh, Bark where everything is kind of uh, dinosaur-themed, or New York City, uh, Throwback Thursday, Sniffin' Safari. So a lot of fun uh, every month to just get a few treats in the in the mail for your dog. I know that I grew up with a dog. We have a Golden Retriever right now. And uh, as much as he loves his sticks and tennis balls, uh, when he gets a new toy, he uh, loves tearing it up for the 30 seconds that it lasts. Uh, pretty destructive dog. So anyway, um, if you go uh, to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, you get a one free extra month of BarkBox. So if you use that special URL referencing Public Interest Podcast, just go to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, and when you sign up, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox. Enjoy. Okay, welcome. Uh, hi, I'm Jordan Cooper with uh, the host of Public Interest Podcasts. And uh, we're here today with Dan Glickman, who will introduce in just a minute a very esteemed uh, public servant in uh, American political history and, and actively as well. Uh, I'd like to tell you a minute about Public Interest Podcast, why we're here today. The topic is discussing the influence of uh, money in politics, uh, and then we're going to have uh, a discussion. Uh, and then at the end, we may have some time for some questions and answers. So I'm the host of Public Interest Podcast, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others about, uh, who are interested in improving the state of the world. And uh, we've had Cap- U.S. cabinet secretaries, congressmen, uh, all sorts of different people about ennobling public service. Now, uh, this podcast was uh, born out of my own uh, efforts to run for political office, and I found uh, that basically it's impossible for politicians, on the one hand, to get out and meet everybody uh, in their district. So I was hoping to scale political campaign meet and greets. And on the other hand, I was seeing... Well, when I was running around, they said, Jordan, you look like a nice guy. Why would you want to be a politician? And I thought, well, if the only time we ever talk about politicians in the news is when it's negative, then it's no surprise that people would have a negative opinion of politicians. So we focus on good news and ennobling uh, public service and speaking with honorable public servants, such as uh, Dan over here. Now, um, finally, why are we talking about money in politics? Well, again, I felt like if everybody had an opportunity to get to meet their politicians and develop an opinion on their own of those politicians, then we might be, they might be able to come to a conclusion that would somewhat inoculate them from the influence of paid political expenditures. What do I mean? Say that Dan's running to represent me as, as he ran to represent Kansas's 4th District, and suppose uh, and I'm running as well against him. And suppose everybody in this room gets a chance to meet Dan and me. And of course, no surprise, everyone prefers Dan. He's a much better looking guy than me. So uh, everyone prefers Dan. And I happen to be very wealthy, and so I spend a few million dollars sending direct mail and TV ads to everybody trying to convince them to vote for me. I thought, well, in that case, maybe you guys would just continue to vote for him anyways and sort of ignore the paid political expenditures. But right now, a lot of Americans, uh, as you've seen since World War II, we've seen an increase in political expenditures that have been uh, inversely uh, proportional to a decrease in uh, electoral turnout rates. Um, so, with that, I'd like to introduce Dan, and we'll get into our discussion about the influence of, politi- of money in politics. So, uh, Dan Glickman is a former United States Secretary of Agriculture, former Chairman of the United States Congress's House Intelligence Committee, having served 18 years as a Democrat representing Kansas's Fourth District. Uh, Dan is a former Chairman of the Motion Picture Association of America, which means he uh, was in charge of the organization at Randy Oscars. Uh, former director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, the Vice President and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute Congressional Program, a Senior Fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and a Reformer Caucus member of Issue 1. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing great. I just wonder how I've been able to keep a job all that time. Yeah, <laughs> you, read, you, read, you read all those things off. I actually didn't run the Oscars. Yeah. I was
0: more technically Hollywood's chief lobbyist in Washington. Mm-hmm. But I did go to the Oscars. So, <laughs> <laughs> Dan... I think everybody in this room is quite interested, and I know I'm certainly interested in hearing, why are you interested in, in the uh, discussing the impact of money in politics? Do you think money has an impact in politics, and why is that of interest to you?
1: Well, money is basically, uh, Sam Rayburn, the former speaker, said money was the mother's milk of politics, but unfortunately it's become the cottage cheese, cream cheese, and every other kind of dairy product of politics as well. It is... Uh, Money has always been historically very critical in politics, and we're never going to take it out of there. Mm -hmm. What's happened is the metastasis of big money in politics, undisclosed money in politics, and the inability of people uh, to get elected without having significant amounts of money. And with that money comes obligations. Uh, People don't give you money for the most part because they like the looks of your tie or suit. People give you money for the most part because they want you to vote a certain way or they want you to uh, handle politics in in certain directions. So money uh, early in the the country's history wasn't as much of a factor because we didn't have media. And much of what the money goes for is to buy radio, television, uh, now in social media and other things. I first ran for Congress in 1976 against an incumbent congressman. I spent $100,000... He spent $100,000 on a primary and general race, that it was a contested political race. That race today would cost a minimum of $5 million apiece, would be my guess. So what does that mean? That meant that when I ran for Congress, I could do things other than raise money. I could actually walk precincts, go door to door, and I, ran, I walked 45,000 doors uh, in a congressional race, which was rare, but more and more people were doing that kind of thing. Today, uh, if I were running for Congress, I would have to spend virtually all my time raising money. There wouldn't be any other time to do anything else.
0: Now, historically, uh, we've seen an increase in the amount of money that is spent in electoral campaigns, as you just mentioned. But at the same time, we've seen an increase in partisanship which I believe you've referenced earlier sort of began in the late 80s, especially by at least by 1994, Newt Gingrich's contract with America. It was a win-at-all-cost, hyper-partisanship sort of environment. Can you speak about perhaps uh, you worked under former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, who historically had a wonderful relationship with Ronald Reagan. Uh, how do you think uh, Tip O'Neill would uh, today have worked with President Trump? Or how do you think that a... Uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan would have dealt with uh, a Speaker, Paul Ryan.
1: Well, I'm I, I mean, talking about today. I'm not sure any leader of Congress, Republican or Democrat, can work very well with President Trump. So, uh, you know, the Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan have as much problems with President Trump as do the Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we have an unusual form of government. I'm going to answer this question in, in a kind of unrelated way. Mm-hmm. Most systems of government are parliamentary. Parliamentary democracies, where the executive and legislative are the same. Our system is, we have separation of powers. And our system was meant so that one foot would be on the brake and one foot would be on the accelerator at all times. It was designed to run slowly in difficult ways because the Founding Fathers didn't want want one branch of government to have too much power over the other. And it was designed to encourage independence in governing. And what's happened today, in part because of money in politics, is, is that consensus building and uh, reaching across the aisle are no longer the goals of, of politics. And and uh, so uh, in the, even in the days when I was in Congress, we could actually get things done. Mm-hmm. And as you say, Tip O'Neill and, and uh, Ronald Reagan could reach across the aisle. And there were also leaders in Congress like Bob Dole, and uh, George Mitchell and others who wanted to come to Washington to actually get things done.
0: Now, to piggyback on Bob yeah. Dole, he once said there is no poor people's caucus, no poor people's political action committee. Right. Can you speak about the implications of that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think he was right. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we have an uh, abundance of PACs. They represent all sorts of interests from the left to the right. Mm-hmm. I, I Really, what I find most interesting okay. is, is that neither political party is really interested in campaign finance reform uh, people often blame the republicans for all the money that's being spent But to be perfectly honest with you, the Democrats are just as much in this game as the Republicans are. And I find very few people who are interested in it because they think it's unilaterally disarming if they decide to to go for some sort of major reform.
0: So in the topic of unilateral disarmament, at least many of the people who are older than me in this room may remember the Cold War and talk of unilateral disarmament in the context of weapons of mass destruction, mutually assured destruction uh, with the Soviets. Uh, And so I was wondering if... There's any sort of analogy because, of course, there was an arms race, uh, literally against the Soviets, and now there's uh, a, a metaphorical arms race in terms of money, uh, especially at the federal level. But as you said earlier, at all levels, all the state levels, legislatures yeah. as well. So, is there how would you is there any sort of comparison to be made between uh, the tactics and strategies we use to overcome uh, the Soviets in a, in a like with a salt treaty, for instance, to remove nuclear weapons with uh, any sort of Hope that we may have for, I guess, reducing the influence of money in politics, reducing the amount of money that's spent in politics uh, without being threatened with the idea of unilateral disarmament. Ronald Reagan was never accused of unilaterally disarming, even though he removed the total, he reduced the amount of nuclear weapons to some extent.
1: Yeah, well, I think there are some parallels to what you're saying. There's no question that the fact that the so- we were strong and the Soviets believed we were strong and it turned out we were stronger than they were, mm-hmm. actually led Gorbachev and Gru to negotiate with uh, Reagan and, and then Bush to uh, have an arms control agreement, and it probably wouldn't have happened if there weren't that somewhat parallel strength issue. So, mm-hmm. uh, but today what's happened is, is that uh, the fact that both parties are raising this massive amounts of money and the individuals are raising the massive amounts of money uh, largely hasn't produced the same kind of, well, if you've got the same amount of money, then you can at least work across the house to get things done. Mm-hmm. Because money is largely given to protect the status quo. Money is not given to create new ideas, new programs. It's, and so it's very, very difficult. Look at the tax bill that's happening today. Huge amounts of money are being given to this tax bill to protect the status quo. And I mean, look, some of these things are important. I understand that. But... Um, Uh, So money is actually a paralyzing influence in government, Mm -hmm. whereas when it came to foreign policy, strength was actually a way to get things uh, done.
0: So one... Way That money continues to become more and more important in politics is something that's referred to, especially uh, through your work with uh, the Aspen Institute in Issue 1, is the committee tax. It's a pay-to-play program in the U.S. Congress where instead of using uh, seniority, competence, Uh, ability and party loyalty as metrics to determine who gets leadership roles within the leading party and within the minority party in the Congress. Instead, there are certain amounts of money that you're expected to raise. Nancy, uh, Speaker of the, uh, or Minority Leader of the House, Nancy Pelosi is expected to raise almost $20 million a year and then it's different levels expected for each uh, level beneath that. Can you speak about the influence of the committee tax and how that keeps ratcheting up? And if there's any sort of Hope in the future for how Democrats and Republicans could agree to reduce the total amount of money spent and still have proportional uh, balance of, of money. That's a very, very
1: good question. This is different than even when I served 30 years ago. You didn't have to raise a certain amount of money for your party if you wanted to go on X committee mm-hmm. or Y committee. Now I was on the Agriculture Committee, which was, I thought, the most important committee in Congress, but it was never viewed as one of the big money committees. Mm-hmm. But To to be honest, where did members of the Agriculture Committee get their money from when they were running for office? They got them from agriculture interests. They didn't get them from maritime interests or from the health community. And so every committee has tended to get money from uh, influences, uh, interests that they represent. But what's happened now is this massive increase in the amount of money that members are required to raise if they want to be on good committees and they want to go on a track to leadership. That's different. That's an insidious factor that we we need to try to find a way to get around. I think most members would agree with me who mm-hmm. actually serve now. They would like to get out of this treadmill of raising money to be on the Ways and Means Committee or the Finance Committee or or to go in the WIP organization and or be in the leadership. You know? Yet
0: you say neither party is interested in unilaterally disarming right. and reducing the cost. So how do we... The, you know, ultimately the public has to get involved. and, and You know, I mean, it's like... Uh,
1: if if folks aren't hearing from home that they don't like the system, then there's no incentive for them to change the system. And so that's one of the things we're trying to do with Issue 1 and with other groups is to try to empower average citizens from the right and the left. By the way, this is not an ideological issue. There are a lot of conservatives who believe in this just as much as liberals. But to empower people... So when, when congressmen go home at their town hall meetings... People ask them and point them out, we see you got fifty thousand dollars from X group. How did you vote on the bill that they wanted you to vote on? and you know those pressures are really important in American democracy, and they 're not really as vibrant as they should be.
0: so on that topic, you were quoted earlier as saying, uh, public groundswell would be required to demand change and i 'd like and you 've just elaborated a little bit on town halls and pointing out exactly what sort of contributions some of the members have had. But could you elaborate on what you think that would look like? And more importantly, how would you catalyze that? How would normal constituents showing up to a town hall meeting, and remember, most constituents aren't showing up to town hall meetings, how would they be motivated not only to show up, but also somehow to sift through the the board of elections to figure out who gave what to whom? Very complicated question. Most people
1: don't show up at town hall meetings because most people don't think it makes any difference. Most people don't think that government is actually producing results for them. Mm -hmm. But when you begin to take away benefits they currently have, Social Security, Medicare, or let's say a, a military base that's in a district, then people will show up to protect the status quo. But, but there are the incentives for people to engage in their government start, frankly, in the, at the elementary school level. We don't really teach civics in school anymore. There's no national service in America to encourage people to be involved in their communities. Uh, some people do do that. So we have an established foundation to get people engaged in the public sphere, so then they care about politics as they get older. And, and again, truthfully, a lot of people believe the political system doesn't produce results. Now, I'd add one other thing. I'm a big fan of, I'm a capitalist. I love competition. And I turn on TV and there are 700 stations on TV. Mm-hmm. And there are 50 different cars you can buy and 60 different smartphones you can buy. But when it comes to political parties, we just have two. And you think about that. With just two political parties, can you really have competition for ideas? Now, I grant you there are gradations within each party from left to right, less probably in the Republican Party, because it's hard to be a moderate in a Republican Party anymore. But there are some, and the Democratic Party has its share of people on the extreme left too. But but it does strike me that we do have to find a way to bring in more competition into the system, and that would help to get people engaged.
0: Now, in your political career and just your tenure in general in Washington, you have seen a number of third parties that have tried to rise. You were there when Ross Perot ran for president as a third-party candidate, getting about 19% of the popular vote. Uh, You were there when the Tea Party came around uh, just a few years ago. Uh, who, by the way, is my impression, I've interviewed a few of them on on Public Interest podcasts, and and it seems to me that they think that not getting anything done is exactly what they want to get done. So, uh, and of course, you've worked with... uh, You've seen foreign parliaments uh, and how they have a multi-party system and how they have – you spoke about uh, creating more engaged voters with a national service program. So uh, you've seen that some countries still have national service requirements, either through the military or otherwise, Germany being – one. so can you speak about, uh, I guess, uh, your thoughts on how America – has tried to, how can we get more engaged citizens? You said there's third parties. We've had that. It hasn't exactly worked. Uh, There are other models in other nations. What do we need, and why haven't the things that we've had not worked?
1: Well, the country is still pretty resilient. I don't want to sound like the end of the world is here. And there are great examples at the state and local level particularly where there's a lot of vibrancy and, and competition for ideas. You know, at the national level, it's really been tough. And I think part of it is a disengaged public mm-hmm. doesn't believe the system works that's why I think education civics, education, national service you know i there's one idea that uh, Timothy Egan he's a columnist for the New York Times wrote about you know if you're an immigrant to America, you have to pass the citizenship test you have to and and when they've given that to people in the public schools in america uh not a lot of good results <laughs> to be to you know and so you think about the fact that if people don't understand how their government works, or, then and how, how, how is it that we can make better citizens? So that's got to be one part of the situation. Are
0: you suggesting we should offer that sort of test as a prerequisite for voting?
1: Uh, I, I don't know about a prerequisite for voting, but maybe a prerequisite for graduation. I don't know. You know I mean, uh, uh, I don't think simply a test is going to make a good citizen. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we test all the way through school and college. I mean, how do you measure people's performance? There's got to be some metrics to this particular system. I also think that, um, you know, when people see results from their government, they're much more likely to be engaged. So what do they see right now? They see bickering, gridlock, they see some paralysis, they see nothing happening, and they, all this money that's being spent that you just talked about, the mm-hmm. metastasis of the money... What does that money go to? It goes to ads, mostly ads. And what are those ads? They don't talk about how beautiful the day is outside in Washington. And people certainly don't talk about how wonderful their families are. Oh, they, they do a little bit of that at the beginning until they get into the race, and then they start talking about how terrible the other person's family is. Are. But, but most of the ads are what you call destructive ads. And that also tends to turn people off. They think the political system is based on nothing but negativism and bickering. And
0: that's a problem. So, I suppose, well, we have a, uh, for instance, Britain has the BBC, and that's not funded by the Parliament, but instead by a direct tax to all individuals who watch television in Britain. We have Voice of America. We have NPR. Uh, We do have good news, and you say people don't understand, don't see what's happening well with government, but yet... Buildings aren't collapsing on our heads because we have building codes. You drink coffee, and we can be assured that because of the FDA, there's no arsenic in it. You eat a burger, you know it's beef. Well, you fly in an airplane, and somebody inspects the engines. So, so why do people not see the influence of the federal, state, and local governments in their everyday lives? Well, first of all,
1: good news uh, doesn't really uh, cap- motivate people very well. Bad news gets the attention. So when a hurricane hits, or we can't provide food or assistance to people in Houston or in Puerto Rico, or there's forest fires out in the West, you know, those kinds of things when they happen, or there's an Ebola epidemic, or or those things, they do get people motivated. And by and large, our government does a pretty good job Mm -hmm. when those things happen. Um, The other factor I would have to tell you is even with all this stuff, uh, we do love, as part of the American ethic, to criticize our government. Mark Twain said 100 years ago that there was only one true criminal class in America, and that was the Congress. And that was before uh, all the stuff that we're talking about today. So at the national level, we do have this kind of uh, uh, cultural affinity to want to criticize our government. But unfortunately today, the parties have become tribal. There's not a lot of competition for ideas. and, And people's
0: trust in the system is being really jeopardized. Before we move on to particular solutions to this yeah. problem, I just would like to paint a picture for our audience. If you would, would you describe the process that you went through to become the chairman of the U.S. Congress House Intelligence Committee? What sort of expectations were there? What sort of hoops do you have to jump through to become the chairman of that committee? Virtually none.
1: I was walking in the hallway by the Rayburn building and a member of the uh, Uh, Intelligence Committee was being asked to retire because he had gone down to the floor of the House and talked about the National Reconnaissance Office, which controls the satellites around the country. And I knew the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, I'm walking right by his office, he comes out and he says, can you keep a secret? I said, yeah, what's the secret? He says, no, 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 can you keep a secret? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I guess so. He said, okay, I'm going to go name you to the Intelligence Committee. So that's how I was named, <laughs> on the spot. Okay, <laughs> doesn't happen like that anymore. And then once I was on the committee, uh-huh. then uh, the seniority system pushed me to the top. So when the then chairman left, I became chairman. And, and so I, I would, then I have learned a lot in the process. Uh, it, in the same way, I was the designated survivor of, of the State of the Union message for President Clinton. Some of you have seen that TV show on TV. So I was picked. I was Secretary of Agriculture. And of course, I thought that was the most important department of government anyway. So they would pick me. But uh, when I, this was 1997 before 9-11. And you ask, well, did you, they give you a lot of training for this? And did you have to know what you do if you need to push the nuclear button? Give me a break. They flew me to New York because they didn't want me to Washington. And um, I spent the time with my, at my daughter's apartment. Well, just and, can we define for our
0: listeners, a designated survivor is, if everybody at the State of the Union address gets blown up at once, then he's the president. Some
1: of you have seen the TV show on ABC called Designated Survivor with Keeper Sutherland, and he was the HUD secretary. So what they do is they go down the line. They tend not to pick the designated survivors who are the State Department and the Defense Department. Really, those are the ones they ought to pick because those are the the ones that know who are the chain of command if you had to use nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But so one year they picked the Interior Secretary and the Health Secretary and they picked me as the Agriculture Secretary and that was it. And it was a great honor. But I would have to tell you that if I, I, I... I told my wife, I said, well, if something happens, I might become president. And her response to me was, good luck. <laughs> and said, that was it.
0: So a lot of times we, uh, and I do want to get to the solutions, but I yeah. just, I'm intrigued with this storyline right. here. A lot of times we wax eloquent about the halcyon days of the past, how yes. well everyone got along together and how there wasn't so much partisanship and people of different political opinions could sit down and, and have lunch together and talk reasonably. Is that... an uh, an accurate portrayal of the period in which you served in Congress?
1: More accurate. First of all, very few people lived at home, uh, that is, in their districts. They lived in Washington. Because Washington is where the job is. Now, you've got to go home to meet your constituents periodically, but if 80% of the members, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, actually either live in their office or have some sort of temporary quarters here and their families live at home, there's far less incentive to build relationships and friendships across the aisle. And so that's a fundamental change, certainly. And that
0: leads to more rancor Mm -hmm. between different men. Well, it
1: leads to uh, far fewer relationships
0: being built. It's easier to dehumanize somebody with whom you are not drinking buddies.
1: I guess that'd be a a drinking eliminator.
0: (laughs) Uh, So um, let's talk about solutions just for a second, and then we'll get on to Q&As. Um, So you've presented a few solutions uh, in a report uh, presented by Issue 1. One of these solutions uh, is something that's being practiced currently in a number of legislatures around the nation, including Maryland, which would prohibit fundraising during the legislative session. So whereas right now on Capitol Hill, um, and perhaps I could allow you to describe it, uh, Congress members that be in their district on Monday, they'd be in their district on Friday, and while they're in D.C., Tuesday they, they have Wednesday they have a caucus, Tuesday they have a caucus meeting, and Wednesday and Thursday they're hitting the phone banks over at the DNC and the RNC. So could you speak for a moment about whether prohibiting fundraising during session in Congress would help uh, reduce the impact of money in politics? I, I think it would be helpful. I don't think it's a panacea because mm-hmm. uh, money
1: always finds the lowest common denominator. So money will find ways to get into the system no matter what. But it is unseemly to be voting on issue X. At the same time, you're raising money from interest groups that have an interest in that. So uh, I do think that we ought to prohibit fundraising while the Congress is in session. I think it's an idea, but it's not
0: going to solve all the problems, certainly. You also spoke about education, and a need to make it clear to members of the public exactly how they're benefiting from different levels of government in their everyday life, and, and then trying to provide uh, a sense among the public that their voice matters, that they're being heard, and that what they say actually impacts the legislative process. Do you have any thoughts on how we can get closer to that, other than, of course, more people listening to Public Interest Podcasts? Absolutely. This is, you're going to
1: change the world of this process, you? <laughs> Well, you know, it's difficult with television now and social media and the bombardment of hundreds, if not thousands, of different messages at all times, and many of the messages are reinforcing people's pre-existing beliefs, so they're not really open to it. To, to new ideas. But but Congress going home and actually having town hall meetings and meeting with their constituents really is an important part of the American democracy. And uh, as opposed to when I was there, uh, where we had person-to-person meetings, now more and more congressmen are having telephone town hall meetings. In fact, I think the majority had that. So if you're on the phone talking to 15,000 people and you take seven questions... You don't see the whites of people's eyes as they're, as they're concerned about issues. And, and most
0: people you know, won't feel heard, right, yeah, by they, definition.
1: They won't feel heard. And, uh, uh, and, and so, you know, it's tricky to figure out how to do it. There are still a lot of congressmen who understand this and, and try to work their districts as best as they possibly can. It also makes it dis- difficult because of gerrymandering. So we have a lot of congressional districts now that are really either almost all Republican or almost all Democrat, and you don't have to appeal to the middle and I, I represented a district in Kansas. Kansas has never been known as one of the great Republican states. I mean, it is a great Republican state. never known as one of the great Democratic states in, in, in the country. So I had to always go out there and appeal to a broad assortment of people on issues. And I used to offend people on the left of my party all the time because I had to take positions that were largely in the middle. That is, uh, that Those incentives to go to the middle are really broken up by a system where you have kind of one-party districts in America.
0: Right. And so as you have increased gerrymandering, the primaries are where you find the real competition in the majority of districts in the nation, and you have fewer districts where the general is so competitive, so then people in Congress begin to worry about being out-primaried. And that is what leads to more partisanship, and the more hyper-partisan it is, the more money they need to defeat a a primary opponent as opposed to a general That, That That is true. But there's still
1: an issue, one word that does make a difference, and that's leadership. Sure. So you take a guy like John McCain or a guy like Lindsey Graham, two Republicans. So they're in that system, but they will break through the system periodically to say, well, you know what, if the constituents don't like what I'm doing, that's fine. I'll go do something else. And so what we, what we have to do, another incentive, is try to provide what I call some courage and leadership in the system So people won't just feel trapped all the time. Now, I lost in 1994. Okay, so I was one of those guys. I beat an incumbent, and then 18 years later, I lost to an incumbent.
0: As an incumbent. As an incumbent.
1: And you know what? It's after about three days of depression. Life's just fine. I became the Secretary of Agriculture. I became the head of the Motion Picture Association. And now I'm doing all this stuff to not necessarily so successfully to bring people together. People have to, who run for politics have to know that this is not necessarily a full-time job for life because if you believe that, you will do anything to stay in it. That's, that's the incentive. Most people feel on anything that they do in their occupation. But if you think about it, it's not a, a forever career choice. I mean, nobody wants to just do something stupid to give up their jobs. But uh, at the same time, if people understood that this was never intended to be full-time politics forever and ever and ever, they might be uh, slightly more courageous
0: to do what they think is right. A final thought to our listening audience here at the Whitmore, the DuPont Summit, about the influence of money in politics, uh, what we need to do to bring our country together, and how we can move forward so we empower citizens, uh, even those who, who don't have money. There was a quote I wanted to say, that the voices of those who have money... Who, uh, to give the politicians, have overwhelmed the voices of those who do not. So if you could respond to that and just say, those without money, who I would hazard to guess are the majority of us, how do we feel empowered? How do we overcome the influence of money in politics?
1: Well, there, there need to be some processes to encourage average voters to contribute into the system through either a tax credit or some sort of other incentive. And it doesn't have to be a lot of money. The, the, the thing about politics is big money is important, but big votes are even more important. And so if the you saw that in the Bernie Sanders campaign, to be honest with you. Hillary ran a kind of traditional big money campaign. Mm-hmm. And he ran this non-traditional small dollar campaign. And he really almost beat her because of that. So uh, there, there, there's still a lot of opportunity for average people to engage in the political system. It, 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 it's not, we're not totally dead just yet,
0: Jordan. Well, we have time for one question, if there is a question in the audience. Okay, and then, of course... Uh, or
1: you can take two real quick, and then I'll answer them both if you want
0: to do that. Well, yeah, so, sir, would you please state your question? Then, ma'am, if you would state your question, I'll have you answer both, okay. and then we'll... So, sir. It's
1: my impression that the, uh, uh, the airwaves are actually owned by the federal government and rented out uh, to the commercial broadcasting companies. I once asked this question of a congressman and a... An alumni meeting, but um, I said, what if we uh, required uh, free airtime, and, and so people didn't have to raise these ridiculous amounts of money, uh, you know, to to get any kind of message, and usually, as you say, a negative, derogatory message across yeah, in a soundbite. Sure. What what did we do to block out times for people to actually have to okay. on the airwaves? I'll hold that. and mm. Yes.
0: First, a comment of hope. I'm a high school science teacher, and here with two of my high school students uh, who are in other sessions right now okay, I'm presenting today, okay. so there is a movement. But so as that, my follow-up question to my comment, uh, if we get them involved and we can get them to these town hall meetings, what would be your singular piece of advice that I could communicate to teenagers and young people that they can do to have their voice be heard?
1: Okay, uh, both excellent questions. Uh, yeah, I think we ought to have, pro- I have a airtime, to be honest with you. But now, and with modern technology, there are so many other ways to reach people that airtime is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. So, you know, just your smartphone and uh, there's going to be smarter smartphones and you're going to they're going to be able to install things in your brain probably, will direct messages. So you got to always remember that the past is never the future when it comes to politics. And in terms of how you get messages to people, there are a myriad of different ways. But still, with the huge amount of money that's being spent in politics, there does need to be some equality, and that, I think, does require some sort of equal time. And, and uh, the British system is free, I think, airtime and, and for their parties in most cases. And we, we need to try a variation on that thing. That's going to be very hard politically to get through, but I, I like the idea. Um, what would be the thing that I would involve? You know, I've been thinking about this a long time because I have four grandchildren and, and, um, I I think that we have always had this ethic in America that things are going to be better than they were before. Uh, And not only technologically and scientifically, but in terms of of people's lives. And, And so if I were a young person, I'm not sure there's one question I would ask. But it's more the tenacity and the persistence of being engaged. And then also having an issue or two that they care about. That makes a big difference. So if you go and ask a politician as kind of a general question, you're going to get a general answer that may not do any good. But if you are saying, well, how are you going to vote on NASA? And how are you going to do the space program in the future? And I want to know if you're going to really be willing to fund that if if you're going to cut taxes at the same time. Tell me what your priorities are. Pushing politicians on their priorities is really, really important, whatever you, they, you think they think they are.
0: And that has been Dan Glickman, former United States Secretary of Agriculture, an 18-year uh, Democrat in Congress, uh, representing Kansas, former chairman of the Motion Picture Association, uh, formerly at the JFK School of Government at, at Harvard, Aspen Institute, Bipartisan Policy Center, and Issue 1, who speaks about Uh, reducing the influence of money in politics in myriad ways through process uh, changes, uh, institutional changes, uh, prohibiting fundraising during legislative sessions to creating a more informed and engaged electorate. These many different solutions are not easy. There's no panacea. There's no silver bullet, as Dan said. But rather, there's, an, there's a responsibility of each and every citizen to take an active role in their, citizen, in their democracy and to take up and take ownership, stand up and take ownership of their democracy. And only by taking ownership of our democracy are we able to reduce the influence of money in politics and continue to uh, allow our country to thrive. So, Dan, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Public Interest Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by GoDaddy, where you can buy your own website, domain name, or build your own website. Now, I've used GoDaddy myself before for various endeavors and found it useful in building my own website. If you'd like to save 30% off the cost of building your own website, go to trygodaddy.com slash public interest. Again, that's trygodaddy.com slash public interest to save 30% off the cost of buying your own domain name and building your own website at GoDaddy. Enjoy. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240 Six three zero zero three eight zero or emailing engage at public Thanks for listening.